0: This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the bowtie bandit of blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Matt Bineker, Director of the Clinical Virology and Vice Chair of Practice at the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic. Given the recent increase in COVID-19 cases, we're sitting down today to discuss kind of new innovations and provide an update on COVID-19. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Bedecker.
1: Hey, Dr. Carter. Great to be here.
0: With this latest outbreak of the Delta variant with COVID-19, could you give us a little bit of flavor on our laboratorians still kind of working on new innovations for covid
1: yeah, we absolutely are. A number of teams are still focused on ways that we can improve diagnostics for COVID-19. I would say the pace has slowed a little bit compared to where we were at a year ago, but still a lot of people working on ways of improving diagnostic testing, reducing uh, turnaround times, improving sensitivity. One of the things that we've been focused on, I would say over the last six months or so, is we have a team that's looking at ways to sequence the virus and we have a few different approaches that we're able to do that. One, we have more of a clinical test that we're using to follow up on patients who have been vaccinated and might be infected to see what strain they've been infected with. And then we also have more of a offline non-clinical sequencing approach where we're looking at more of a population level to get an idea of what strains are circulating in different parts of the state, different parts of the country. So both of those have been underway, but a lot of innovation, a lot of work going into sequencing, especially with the the rise of new variants, including Delta.
0: Wow. So you mentioned a a couple of ways. uh, So you mentioned turnaround time, diagnostic sensitivity, and then you brought in sequencing and you started to give us a little bit of an understanding about why sequencing, but could you go into a little bit more detail, elaborate for us a little bit about this COVID-19 innovation around sequencing? Because this is a little bit new from what we've had been doing in the past, right? In the past, we've been talking about either identifying the virus or identifying the uh, antibodies, but you're talking about sequencing that virus.
1: Right. Yeah. Still, for the most part, in actual patient diagnostics and management, we don't need to know what strain of the virus is causing the infection because the management around those patients regardless of whether they're infected with Delta variant or Alpha variant, is usually gonna be the same. But it is important for us to know what strains of the virus are entering into our communities from an epidemiologic perspective so that we can start to predict what the transmission is going to look like, how rapidly people might get infected, and also to be able to gauge whether things like a vaccination, existing therapies, are going to continue to be effective against new and emerging variants. So that's where sequencing comes into play. It's not used so much as a diagnostic test, but it is used to help, one, verify what type of SARS-CoV-2 variant is causing infections in a population, and also to be able to kind of continue to track from an epidemiologic perspective. So the use is a little bit different, but still very important.
0: Wow. If we're looking at what is kind of changing management uh, for our patients, like you were talking about diagnostic sensitivity, working on that, and timeliness is always a question of of concern for patients, but also providers. Could you help us understand a little bit on what kind of work is being done in those areas?
1: The silver lining of the pandemic has been that Diagnostic test manufacturers and clinical laboratories have been able to stand up now over 200 different types of emergency use authorized molecular tests. So we have a lot of options today that we didn't have at the beginning of the pandemic. And because we have more options, there aren't as many supply chain challenges. And so we're able to get those results out faster than we were 16, 17 months ago. Even though labs, usually have the reagents and the test to be able to get those reports out quickly. There's still a lot of interest in driving down that turnaround time, getting results out faster, providing convenience to patients. And so a few of the exciting spaces of innovation include developing and working with industry partners on tests that can be used either at a patient's home or at a point of care setting. So I think what we'll see is a movement towards more testing that patients can get performed in the emergency department or at their physician's office, or maybe even being able to go to a pharmacy and take that test home and do the test on their own. So that's where the innovation has really focused on over the last six to nine months is moving more of the testing from the laboratory setting to a more decentralized approach in the point of care or actually where the patients live.
0: That's interesting. It seems to mimic at least what I've seen in the news for a lot of patient care and management in terms of remote monitoring of patients at home and keeping them out of the hospital.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. The caveats and the things we have to keep an eye on is that although it's a good thing for testing to be more accessible, for results to be faster, for it to be more convenient, we still have to make sure that the testing is highly accurate. And because a lot of these tests are still relatively new, we've only them out for maybe a period of less than six months, there hasn't been a lot of opportunity to really kick the tires and test them against some of the more tried and true methods like we've used in the laboratory. So that's important to make sure that they're accurate, that they're giving our patients the same answers that they would get if the samples were sent to an actual clinical lab for testing. So that's kind of what we're actively involved in now.
0: For more laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. that's really fascinating and I think that brings up then if you're talking about the diversity of testing options that are now available and on, on the market you know in combination with trying to triage patients and, and testing, And I think another point is the sequencing now. You're talking about conversing with public health as well. Could you help our audience kind of understand kind of what have these conversations been like now that we're into this pandemic this far and the way that laboratory medicine testing is moving? I imagine that you're having more conversations with some of your infectious disease colleagues. You're having more conversations with public health these days.
1: Yeah, I think the conversations have just changed the, the, the types of discussions we're having. Whereas early in the pandemic, the conversations really focused on what type of test do I use? How do I interpret this result? Now the conversations have uh, turned to issues like my patient's been vaccinated, but they tested positive. What does that mean? Is there a way for us to know whether they're transmitting infectious virus or not? So the, the questions have evolved as the virus has changed, as uh, we've learned more about the disease, but still those interactions, those discussions and the conversations I have with My infectious diseases colleagues and anyone who's caring for these patients is still just absolutely essential as they need to understand the test and the results, and I also need to understand the clinical scenario to help them interpret those results.
0: So I think this highlights for our listeners, kind of this grand theme of this podcast of connecting lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. This is exactly what you're talking about. Can I pin you down? And it sounds like that was a common question that comes up that you gave us as an example. How do you answer that question?
1: Yeah, so it has become a, a relatively common question over the last few months, And and especially over the last, I would say, week or two, is we've learned that this new strain of SARS-CoV-2, the Delta variant, uh, is more highly transmissible and can infect uh, individuals who have been fully vaccinated. So that question comes up, they've been exposed, they've tested positive, they've been fully vaccinated, what does that mean and how do I know if they've got a lot of virus in their respiratory sample or not very much? And usually what we have to do in those situations is go back and look at the laboratory result and try to get some of the more specific details about was there a lot of signal indicating a lot of viral RNA or was there very little signal implying very low levels of viral RNA. We can't use those tests as like true quantitative assays, but we can help the clinical teams in helping to decipher whether it's more or less likely to be an active infection that could potentially be transmitted to other people. So again, back to your point, it takes a lot of back and forth, a lot of communication experts who understand the nuances of the test result to kind of land on the appropriate interpretation and the right next steps.
0: Fantastic. I think you've given us uh, several examples on many of these COVID challenges that have kind of—I don't know if the right word to say solve—but <laughs> you know, we're, we're finding solutions every day. But I was curious for our audience: are there one or two kind of COVID-related challenges that have really been running around in your mind the past week?
1: For sure. Yeah, COVID has proven to be one of those diseases that seems to be able to stay one step ahead. Or you think you've got it figured out and then it throws a curveball and you have to change your plans. I think the focus of the conversation over the last two weeks has been this large surge in COVID cases uh, in certain parts of the country. And it seems to be uh, associated with areas of low vaccination where we're seeing this virus really spread through those communities very, very rapidly. And it's a challenge from being able to keep up from the diagnostic perspective and offering enough tests, but also it makes me question what's going to happen in the next three months, what's going to happen six months from now. This is not the last variant that we're going to see. We'll see others arise. And will our current testing detect those variants? I think so, but we need to continue to keep on top of that. The other big unknown is we're now coming up on fall and then winter will, will fall soon after that. And we typically have influenza in our communities. Last year we saw a near absence of influenza. Will that happen again? And so beginning to plan for what if we have a more typical influenza season on top of what's likely going to be a challenging fall and winter from the COVID perspective as there will still be a pretty good percentage of the population who hasn't been vaccinated. So that's one of the things that's keeping me up and trying to plan for.
0: Yeah, I can uh, understand that. And and when you said the fall, I I started to think, uh, both of us have uh, kids and I was thinking about going back to school and how is the Delta variant impacting what we're thinking about for school and starting school? Um, Yeah,
1: it's a it's a big unknown. And I think that one thing we've learned is that when you think you've got a plan uh, here in a few days that plan will likely need to be adjusted. And I think the the schools throughout the country have been planning for kids returning back face to face learning, I still think that's uh, something we should be striving for, but our schools and school systems need to be ready with alternative strategies because there, you know, is the likelihood that as kids get back together, we'll see high rates of transmission in those settings, potentially illness and disease. And those those kids go home and interact with family members, some of which have underlying health conditions. So we just need to continue to be ready to be flexible and adapt as things go along.
0: Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Benneker. I think the American Academy of Pediatrics has, has recently released some guidance around this, and we'll include that in the, the show notes for those uh, parent listeners as well. So thank you for rounding with us, Dr. Yeah. Bineker, and, and telling us uh, these uh, new updates and recent developments with COVID, with the Delta variant. And thank you for d- taking the time to discuss this topic with us.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please follow or subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations.